to Dr. Cheryl's Pod Couch, where we talk about all things mental health. Today, I'm so excited that we have on Sarah Mitchell, who's a sleep consultant who's based in Mountain View, California. She empowers parents to teach their little ones to sleep and become the loving, attached, well-rested parents they want to be. Sarah offers home and virtual consultations and has online classes for newborns and babies four through 24 months old. How are you, Sarah? Good morning. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm such a fan of your book and everything that you do. So I'm so grateful to be here. Oh, thank you so much. I, I'm really excited you're here because I am sure that anybody listening right now may be pregnant, may have a young baby at home. And at some point, I don't know any parent that hasn't anywhere from struggled to full-blown sleep deprivation at their wits end, don't know what to do with themselves. So I am really excited to start off with you telling us your story about how did you get into this and um, where did this start from, this interest in, in getting babies to sleep? Yeah, yeah. Well, parenthood is definitely a journey and I'm a chiropractor by training. So I came into uh, expecting my child I, I was prepared to be really, really good at it because I've spent eight years studying the body and I understand anatomy and physiology and obstetrics and pediatrics. And I was really just knocked right off my feet with this little guy. We had a rough birth and you know that kind of sets you on a different platform as you start out with. And you know he just wouldn't sleep. I was up nursing him every two hours and feeling exhausted, feeling like I should know what to do, but I didn't. And, you know, a lot of household tension because you're sleep deprived new parents. I often say you've been promoted to the most important job in the world. You're now CEO of this little person's life and you have no prior training or experience. So and it's do, quite do, a curve. Yeah. Did you have that feeling? I think that you said it, you've said it twice that you should have known what to do. Like, isn't a mother just wired to know yes. what to do? And so talk about that. Is that a myth? It, where does that come from? I, I very much believe that it's a myth. I think that there are many things about parenting that are very instinctual. Your, you know, your strong drive to protect your child, that strong, fierce love that you feel. But if you think about it, like breastfeeding, doesn't always come naturally. If you think back, like you, there's lactation consultants out there for a reason. It's not always innate. And we think that getting our children to sleep should be so natural, but often it's not. It's really a parenting skill that can be taught and honed. And the thing is your child's temperament really does play a huge role in all of this as well. Some kids are you know, better sleepers than others. It's not, it's not a failure on the parent's part. It's kind of some, part of that is innate, you know, your child's temperament. Yeah, so how many, how many kids, whether it's percentages or millions, I don't know, what are the, some stats on how many babies have sort of that temperament where they have difficulty sleeping or they fall asleep, but then they don't stay asleep very long. There's all these different sleep challenges. Yeah, that's a great question. We don't have very good statistics on that because to some extent, there's some subjectivity to it because my dream sleeper could be your worst nightmare because we have different thresholds for how much sleep we need. So, you know, if I'm a new mom and I've got a six week old and I only need six hours of sleep and he's giving me a slip out six hour stretch, I'm winning, right? But if I'm someone like myself who needs a lot of sleep because I have an autoimmune disease, I need a lot of sleep, six hours is just not enough for me, right? So it's very difficult to give percentages, but like you said, 
everyone struggles at one point or another and has to figure out, you know, what, why is this happening? What can I do to help? Yeah. One of the things that I think is really interesting, I don't think I've ever shared actually, is that, um, of course, you know, being very much, uh, someone who studies attachment and bonding with all three of my kids, I actually did three different methods, three different sleep methods. And, um, like the first one was baby wise. I was a baby wise mama with my first. And what's so interesting is that with all three, they were all three are awesome sleepers. I happen to have, Mm -hmm. I'm sure I had nights, but in general, I have, I still to this day have good sleepers. And so, Mm -hmm. um, I also want, I'm just sharing that because I want people to know that there is actually not, I don't think, um, one magical answer or one way of doing things like, Oh, if you just did this, I actually Mm -hmm. with um, with my third, it's not even really a sleep method, but do you remember the, um, book, um, bringing up baby, baby. I do. I do. I love that book. Yeah. So I was like, Oh, my third one's going to be like a French baby. And I'm just going to talk to him and I'm going to tell him like, listen, you're my third and you need to just sleep. And so they Mm -hmm. said, they just talk to babies like they're adults and they believe that, (laughs) that they understand you. So I would do that. I mean, I just, so three different, but I was steady with my three methods and it it worked worked out for me. Yes. So talk about what are reasonable expectations in terms of sleep i'd say particularly those first three months like sleeping and Mm -hmm. napping and number of hours what what's reasonable what should someone expect yeah those first three months i think that most people actually underestimate how much sleep those babies need because they're sleeping anywhere from about 16 to 20 hours per day and the gold standard i think for a nighttime stretch up to three months is like six to eight hours. And you also have to consider too, is your child breastfeeding? What's your supply like? Are you working on that? Have you had any issues with that? Or are you formula feeding and you have a lot of confidence about how many ounces? But really a six to eight stretch is is pretty amazing those first zero to three months. Mm -hmm. And then I believe, I work with a lot of breastfeeding kids. I think that most breastfed, exclusively breastfed with the introduction of solids, those kids can't really sleep through the night which is another whole discussion, what does sleeping through the night actually mean? But for me, it means sleeping 11 hours without getting up to eat. Most kids don't do that until about eight to nine months of age. That's very average. And obviously there's outliers, but that's what I have you know, found. And I find right now um, that there is a big push to get these little babies sleeping 11 to 12 hours overnight, um, which isn't doesn't really fit with my philosophy. I understand there's people that need to go back to work so quickly, um, but that's not something that I necessarily promote. Right. I think that sounds like a setup for failure. Yes, exactly. And I love your comment about the the three different techniques because 40% of my clients are second or third time parents where what they did with the first one just doesn't work with the second one. And I have, I love baby wise, some of it. I love, I think there can be things in baby wise that sets people up to fail, like you said, because it does kind of indicate that we have to have the child nap for a certain amount of time. And that can be really hard to control the length of the nap, but yeah. And bringing up baby, great book. Love that one too. So I'm self-taught. So I read all the different theories. So I pulled from a little bit here and there when I work with clients because temperament, like I said before, plays a big factor in things as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had, I had one kid who every single time I put him in a car seat, he screamed. And then oh, the other gosh. two, well, everybody's dream is to be in a car, in a car seat, because you know they're going to knock out. 
right? But I, my third wouldn't. So um, I just, I hope that anybody listening that has a baby or is pregnant can really, really hear that. Um, there's two things that I feel like are these almost, almost like old wives' tales that I'm, I want to hear your comments on. First okay. one is um, crying it out. Do, I'm mm. going to speed ask you these questions, these two. Do you believe yeah. in it or not? So my first question is, what's your definition of crying it out? Right. I would say 10 minutes or more of letting your baby just cry. You, you walk out, they scream, and you can tolerate that for 10 or more minutes. Okay. <laughs> That's my okay. random definition. Yeah. Okay. And, and the reason I ask is some people's definition is just to close the door and not go back in. And I definitely don't believe in that because I believe that our kids need to be acknowledged and talked to, like out of that book. I really believe that. Tell them exactly what's going to happen, even though they're only four months. Just start communicating. We don't know what's sticking. Um, now, I do believe, though, that with any sleep changes, even if you don't leave the room, that there will be some tears. Absolutely, because that's your child's way of communicating with you. And they might be saying, hey, this isn't how I fall asleep. I usually like to nurse till I'm like half asleep and then you put me down. What are you doing putting me down without having nursed? And I, the only way I can communicate that to you is with tears. Um, so there is definitely crying involved. None of us want to hear our child's children cry. But you kind of get to the point where you're like, the way we've been doing things isn't benefiting both of us right now. And I always want to remind, especially mom and baby and breastfeeding mom and baby, that you guys are a unit. And what's happening has to be working for both of you and that mom is an important person too, right? And so when I read your book, I was like, oh my gosh, this is something that I experienced for sure with mommy burnout. And I see it so often in my clients is that they cannot let their kids cry at all at the cost of themselves really burning out, you know? And there is a happy medium in there. So I don't believe in cry it out closing the door, but I do know that there will have to be tears. I've tried it so many different ways and I just know that there ultimately has to be some tears. Yeah, I really, I agree with that. I mean, I have, um, I mean, truly uh, my best friend, she would let her kids cry it out at some point. And um, I don't know how she really felt about that, but, but she would, she got to the point where she was like, you just gotta let it do it. And when I had babies, I had a limit. I don't know what it was, but I'm sure it wasn't more than 15 minutes or so. And then it was just so distressing. It wasn't like I was going to fall asleep. And then I remember laying there having that dilemma of, well, but if I go back in, is that good or bad for them? You know, and yeah. so there's, there's all these, and then you're sleep deprived while you're making these choices. And mm -hmm. a lot of times your partner or spouse is sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're making these lovely. decisions by yourself. Yeah. Somehow one partner can sleep through this. Um, so, I I like that you're you're open and flexible about the your stance on crying it out and it's subjective and you're gonna get a lot of advice. I'm speaking to the listener now. You're just anybody with a baby and it doesn't have to be your first baby. You're just gonna get all sorts of advice. And I think hopefully so far you hear the message that every baby is different, every mama's different, and your relationship with one another um, is different. And whether you're nursing or bottle feeding is also changes things. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm talking with Sarah Mitchell, sleep expert, and we're focusing on babies right now. So the second wives tale that I feel like I've heard, you know, sort of wives tale is never wake a sleeping baby. What do you think about that? I'm so glad you brought that up. So we wake children to preserve a schedule, right? 
And what I, I actually don't teach a fixed schedule. So baby wise, what you mentioned earlier is a fixed schedule. And I don't teach a fixed schedule because I feel like it does set people up to fail because you can't control how long a child naps for. What if they poop themselves awake after 30 minutes? Well, they're not going right back down. So what do you do now? Do you stay now to wait till that next fixed nap time? So I like to teach a flexible schedule where you're learning skills so that you can roll with the punches because parenting is not perfect. So I would only wake a child, like I have a very short list of times that I would actually wake a child. And usually I only do it if I have evidence and proof that letting them sleep too long is just disrupting something else. And do you feel that so, way about children? Like I have a first grader and school starts so early. So school just started this week and school starts at 7.45. So we have to be out the door at 7.20 and he's six years old. And I'm a huge, like I let my kids sleep to the minute. So but I had to wake him up the last two mornings and I feel terribly guilty. Yeah. Can you talk to me about, <laughs> I know he's it's out not of, a good feeling. Yeah. It's a terrible <laughs> feeling. And like, how do you, can you make that up? I've heard different things. Can you make up sleep? Can you not? What are your thoughts? Well, part of this is that his schedule is probably a little shifted from the summer. And so he's used to going to bed a little bit later. And so he has to sleep in a little bit longer to get that 10 hours or so that he's needing at this age. And so you might start by getting him to bed a little bit earlier so that he naturally will wake up a little bit earlier so that his body's kind of in tune with his school rhythm. And then on the weekend, you can let him sleep in, but I wouldn't let him sleep in more than an hour kind of past his regular bedtime or wake, wake up time for school because then you, you have challenges again on Monday morning. Oh, interesting. Right? So on a weekend, you would wake a six-year-old up no later. Like he, if he has to be up at seven is the latest he has to be up, you wouldn't let him sleep past eight on a weekend. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. Right. Now it gets a bit different into the teen years. There's more different strategies there. But at this point, yeah, I also have a first grader. So I know exactly what it's a terrible feeling. You're like, their little bodies are growing and changing so much they need to sleep. But, you know, but but the other side of that is if I don't wake him up or I let him sleep too long, then we're rushed out of the house. And that's never a good way to start your day, right? With everyone kind of grumpy and cranky that they right. didn't have time to kind of fully wake up. Right. So oh, I'm yeah. sure everyone can relate to that. It's a little bit of a dilemma. Um, okay, yeah. but going back to babies, and I won't go on teens because that really is a whole nother half hour discussion. But it is. Um, going back to this, um, going back to babies, okay? What do you think about swings or rocking a baby to sleep, nursing or feeding a baby? baby to sleep? Do you think mm -hmm. that's setting up bad habits, good habits? What are your thoughts? Right. So in my newborn class, I teach that your first goal is really to keep your baby well rested. Prevention is so key in the newborn stage. And when I say newborn, I mean like zero to about eight, eight or nine weeks. And because sleep begets sleep. So the more tired they are, that's when everything just starts to fall apart and you get into this pit that's really hard to get out of. So keeping your baby well rested, which means in the newborn stage, really they have to be back asleep almost every hour to every hour and a half. Like they really can't stay awake very long because then it becomes harder to put them down. And that's when you get into those scenarios where like you rocked him for 40 minutes, got him down, then he woke up 20 minutes later and you're like, oh my God, that was so painful. So timing is super, super important. So as far as other tools like swings and whatnot, um, I always refer people to the American Academy of Pediatrics Safe Sleep Guidelines because we're actually not supposed to use those for sleep. Um, but in desperate measures, I definitely have used the swing before while I sit and watch because it can be a way to meet my second goal of my newborn class, which is to use things that aren't a complete burden to you. 
because it's great to have babies sleeping on us, but if your baby will only sleep on you, right, it, be it becomes really hard to maintain. So that's where you want to use other tools in your toolbox um, to help you out. So considering safe sleep, but then also, you know, considering are you watching your child, you know, what can you do to help them get more sleep without breaking your back or your arms? Like my husband got tendonitis from swinging our car seat so much, you know? Yeah, I think that's um, common. People get back pain, people, you know, from uh, bouncing and shushing yeah. and walking. And yes. Um, yes. so talking about safety and sleeping uh, and, and sort of, um, you know, following American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, I want to know what your thoughts are about tummy versus back sleeping. Um, and not, we know what the AAP says. I'm just curious what you think, and do you think since, let's say, when that started being banned, I think late 1970s or so, you can maybe correct me on that, um, do you see a difference in sleep disturbance given back versus tummy sleeping? Wow, yes. When kids can finally roll onto their stomach, it's usually a turning point for sleep. So most kids actually prefer to sleep on their stomachs eventually. And I think there's something innate with that. Like if you think of a child sleeping on you, their face is pressed up against you. And I think they like that feeling in the crib. And often kids will rub their face as kind of a self-soothing thing that helps them kind of relax. And so, as you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics always says, put them down on their backs. And they would actually prefer that your child can roll both ways before that you let them sleep on their stomach. And that can happen anywhere around five, six months of age. Um, when they can roll one way but not the other, that's where it kind of gets into this gray area. Because theoretically, if they can roll, they have the core strength to protect their airway, right? But then a lot of kids panic because they can't roll back. And so you often go through this like one and a half to two week period where your child can roll one way and then get stuck and you have to go back in and like flip them back over and it's very painful and it does last about a week or two. And that's why you wanna keep working on tummy time a lot during the day and showing your kids how they can roll. And then being like positive reinforcement, well, you roll. Cause the first time they do it, they're like, oh my gosh, what was that, right? But just keep making it seem like a safe thing to do and lots of praise and comfort, even at that age. Mm -hmm. Okay, and do you, mm -hmm. do you think that there has been a change in, in parents reporting sleep disturbance since you know back is best kind of became this campaign that's a great question i don't know if i can accurately answer that i think that we are even in the past eight years there's so many more resources out there about baby sleep so i feel like it's being talked about so much more but the thing about the back to sleep is you can't deny that it has helped decrease the incidence of SIDS significantly and so you know it's a standard that we really just can't ignore okay um, so my last question to you is a two-parter. Do you really have to train a baby to sleep and are they ever naturally good sleepers? Great question. Some kids are naturally great sleepers and they usually have a really kind of easygoing disposition. And I heard one of the Stanford sleep docs at a talk one time say something so insightful. He said that, you know, the drive to sleep is biological, but the way we sleep is learned. And so what happens in the newborn stage is some of us may be a little bit more comfortable or more confident than others. And we hear some fussing and some, some grunting and we go over and we observe our child. Maybe we offer some touch, but we don't necessarily pick them up. And they, those children kind of keep learning to sleep in the crib rather than on people. Um, and then there's the parents who are so nervous about the tears every time they, and I did this, every time they cry, they pick them up and they nurse them, you know, and we inadvertently teach those kids that the boob is a soother 
or that every time they fuss, they get picked up. And so, you know, those are two different continuums and, and no judgment because we all do the very best that we can in those first few months. Like the first time being a parent is so overwhelming. You do the best we can, but, but definitely the way we sleep is learned. Okay. So you mentioned um, having the breast as a soother. What about, what are your thoughts on pacifiers? I think pacifiers are great in the newborn stage. They help decrease the incidence of SIDS. Um, they can be very helpful, especially if your child has reflux or, get, or is very gassy. That can be really helpful. Um, they can become kind of a sleep crutch later on, but it's something that you can deal with later on. Having a pacifier is a lot less uh, addictive, if you will, than you know being nursed to sleep or held to sleep every time. So I think they're great. What about thumbs? Thumb suckers. Yeah, thumb suckers are the best sleepers, really. And again, you know, parents worry about like being addicted to it and not being able to get rid of it in comparison. And I can tell you, I have really good data on this because I've had two thumb suckers. And my daughter gave it up in like two nights at age three. We motivated her with a little bit of Lego. She went and got the band-aids, put them on, done with it, ready to move on. Whereas my son, who has some more sensory issues, it was much more challenging. Um, but you know, for me, having being someone that needed so much sleep, I'm fine with that. I had to pay the price of it later on. And when he was older, the thumb sucking, because he was such a great sleeper at the beginning when I really needed it, you know? So it's, it's a trade off for sure, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Yeah. I think when I look at thumb suckers and I think about, uh, you know, how hard parents work at get, at weaning them off of a pacifier or, or their thumb. I just think mm -hmm. it's soothing though. And I, it feels like if there's anything that looks natural, it's thumb sucking. It's just mm -hmm. sort of like some kids like, whoop, they find it and mm -hmm. it's soothing for them. So it's, I think hard for me, uh, to look at that as something that's so problematic when it looks so comforting and natural yeah you know yeah and the, the the real concern is dental changes right and that usually only happens if your child's been sucking their thumb really consistently after age of two so you know if you want to stop before age two you can and that's you know my son kept going and we have some dental changes happening but he has some other issues i think he's an extreme case i've coached lots of other parents about how to stop the thumb sucking and it's not always as bad as we think it's going to be yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh -huh. So is there anything else? Oh, I know. I want to highlight one thing you said, um, sleep begets sleep in our house. That's like a mantra. So I want to highlight it for people who are listening. Cause you just, you said it cause you probably say it a lot as a sleep expert, but, um, yeah. my, my interpretation of sleep begets sleep is the more sleep you get, the more your kid will sleep. And I think that what people think is, oh my gosh, they took a really long nap this afternoon, so now they're gonna be a bear to put down. Do you think that that's true? Um, I think what you're saying is true, that people think that, but I don't think it's true. And the number one kind of place where people get off track is having bedtimes that are too late. So they're often based on, you know, getting home from daycare or when dad comes home. And so we like to eat dinner together and then we want to do an eight o'clock bedtime. We're talking about babies here. That is usually way too late for babies. Most babies need to be asleep between like 6.30 and 7.30 in general. Um, and then those kids who are going to bed and staying up too long before bed, they wake up more at night or they wake up at five in the morning as well. So I totally agree with you. Sleep begets sleep, more sleep, easier to fall asleep and then stay asleep.
Yeah, absolutely. I have loved having this conversation with you. It's brought me back to the baby yeah. days. I love babies and I love that stage. Is there anything else that you want to share or can you tell people where to find you? Sure. Well, I just want to remind everyone that you're doing a great job. Like your kids are, are love you and adore you and the sleep will come, but you may have to work at it more than you actually thought you ever would. <laughs> so that's one thing. And then they can find me at, at um, uh, helpingbabiessleep.com. That's my website. And you can follow me on Instagram too. I post lots of helpful educational tips on there too. That's wonderful. Sarah Mitchell, thank you so much for all of your insight and happy sleeping to all. Happy sleeping to all. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.